0: M-S-W-Media. Will pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill, it's time to have some fun. Do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dandy. Welcome to what is going to be a different show than the one I originally had planned. Just like I'm sure this is a different week than the one you had planned. I was supposed to go up to San Francisco this past weekend to hang out with Lars Ulrich of Metallica. And we were going to drink blackened whiskey and record an episode of this podcast. But that got postponed, just like about everything else out there. Life as we know it has been turned upside down. For how long? I don't know. Nobody does. It feels like it could be a while. And it's scary. We are up against something powerful. Something we can't easily identify. Something that doesn't discriminate. when choosing its victims. We're all vulnerable. And all we can do, I guess, is... Hunker down, take care of each other, try to weather this thing. Speaking of taking care of each other, you know the old saying, the show must go on? Well, not so much when it comes to live concerts, sporting events, and all that, but podcasts are another thing. You're solitary. This one is, anyway. I'm by myself. I'm not going to talk to you about the usual subject matter we we address here, which is, you know, going out for adult beverages, having a good time, doing all that, because you're not. You should be doing that. Most places you're not allowed to do that anymore for the time being. So uh, here's hoping you have a well-stocked home bar. What I'm gonna do instead this episode is tell you a story. It's about loss, a devastating loss, and of uh, finding hope in the wake of that devastation. If nothing else, it's a few minutes. Of escape from pandemics and politics and gloom and doom. Uh, it's all I have to offer today, my friends, and I offer it with love, certainly, and uh, and really my my best uh, wishes to you out there. I hope that you're doing okay, and um, yeah. So let's get to it. So, I used to volunteer for 826LA. It's a nonprofit organization started in the mid aughts by uh, the author Dave Eggers, who wrote a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. 826LA uh, is dedicated to helping underprivileged kids develop their writing skills. It's sort of an after school program a lad like me might have benefited from. Instead, I learned about writing the old-fashioned way, from angry nuns who beat the fear of dangling modifiers and extraneous apostrophes, into me with metal rulers and leather belts. I can't mention the habit-wearing hags who helped raise me without giving a shout-out to the haggiest of them all, Sister Mary Gerald. Or shout-down, I should say. SMG, as we called her, is definitely six feet under by now. Back when I was a fifth grader, known as, uh, well, I do not tell you my nickname back then, but uh, back when I was a fifth grader at the resurrection of our Lord Elementary School, SMG was a barely-living legend. She would cross between the Crypt Keeper and the Wicked Witch of the West, only meaner. SMG was an absolute terror in black and white, and she gave more Philly kids nightmares than Alfred Hitchcock. There were certain things about Sister Mary Gerald that kids found endearing, You couldn't help but be impressed by her ability to remain upright for extended lengths of time despite a severe curvature of the spine brought on by being 193 years old. Her bony frame was a wonder to behold, an arthritic cocapelli sans flute and fertility. She didn't walk so much as skitter across the room like a demented Monty Python animation. I had never heard a voice like SMG's before or since. Imagine a busted muffler on a clown car driven by a banshee inside an echo chamber in hell. It was truly awesome in its sheer ability to disorient. But the most entertaining thing about Sister Mary Gerald as far as a group of 11-year-old boys was concerned was her senility. The old gal was in the winter of her life and wasn't wearing a jacket was always losing her bearings and forgetting names or where she was or who it was she had originally meant to smack across the face with one of those gnarled old hands of hers. Who better to instill knowledge in tomorrow's leaders? Looking back, it's clear to me that she was in the grips of fairly severe dementia, which is sad. In my defense, it would have been easier to feel sorry for her if she had stopped hitting us for a minute. Apparently the Catholic Church did not consider her condition grounds for removal from her position of authority, though. They couldn't have given less of a shit about it had she been giving us all handjobs. Well, at least not until she made them. Give a shit, that is, not give us handjobs. Well, Father Doherty probably wouldn't have minded. Uh, the way she made them finally give a shit was Rob Willard, the kid in the class with the big fairy birthmark on his neck. You know, there's always one kid in your class with a big fairy birthmark on his neck. Technically, it's called a congenital nevus. And Rob had finally, in fifth grade, after enduring six years of people making fun and pointing and petting it and naming it, gotten surgery to have it removed. I'll never forget the morning he came into our classroom, just a day or two after his procedure, to deliver a note from the principal to Sister Mary Gerald. SMG snatched the slip and proceeded to spend what seemed the entirety of third period attempting to read it with her mole rat eyes and trifocal glasses— Finally, she looked up and waved Rob Willard away. It was unclear if she had divined the note's meaning or not. Knowing what was good for him, he quickly turned and darted for the door. Poor bastard almost made it, too. Wait a minute, boy, she growled. This was followed immediately, and I swear, by one of those eerie piano scales that pretend doom in the movies. It's possible I was watching too much Twilight Zone back then. Rob Willard stopped in his tracks. The entire class sat up straight, tense with fear. Come over here, she hissed. as The sky grew dark and thunder rumbled in the distance. Rob Willard swallowed hard, turned around, and nervously edged toward her. You've got something there, she croaked as he approached, squinting at him curiously, and extending a twisted claw toward the young man's throat. He was frozen with fear. Shameful. It's important that a young man maintain his appearance. The entire class's stomach clenched as her gnarled digits found their way to his collar. Rob Willard opened his mouth as if to say something, but just then she withdrew her hand with surprising speed. I remember thinking that she must have decided it was nothing after all. You got lucky this time, Willard. But wait, no. His mouth was still open, gasping noiselessly while the face surrounding it turned suddenly shockingly white. Time stopped for one lurid moment, then started again as Rob Willard clutched at his throat, a look of sheer panic on his face, and blood streamed freely through his fingers. Sister Mary Gerald was holding something aloft, studying it, scowling at it, completely oblivious to the suffering, bloodied boy in front of her. She turned to the class, and a crooked smile cut across her face. "'A string on his collar,' she crowed. "'Dispose of this,' she said, handing Rob Willard his own neck stitches, without looking at him as though he were an abomination in the sight of the Lord." Rob ran from the room, and SMG went on with the lesson as though nothing had happened. After I put this story in my book, American Wino, I looked Rob Willard up on the internet. He still lives in Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, and he's a surgeon now. Specializes in dermatology and surgical reconstruction, don't you know? You can't make this shit up. I wrote him, and he wrote me back, and he said, When I, when I went back to the surgeon who excised the nevus, he said, That nun should be shot adding that he didn't think what happened in that classroom had any long-term psychological effect on him. But you became a skin surgeon, I replied. I mean, there has to be some sort of connection, right? Nah, he said. Just a coincidence. As for Sister Mary Gerald, they didn't shoot her or fire her or take any disciplinary action, as far as I know. Philly's motto should be, it's your fault you live here. Well, 826LA didn't save me from Sister Mary Gerald, but the idea that they would have liked to made me want to help the cause. So in the fall of 2010, they, they had a fundraiser at the Writers Guild Theater in Beverly Hills. It was called I Found This Funny, an evening of music and comedy, and it was hosted by Judd Apatow, the uh, comedic thermonuclear device behind the films The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. The event featured appearances by numerous luminaries, including Dave Eggers, the late Gary Shandling, Aziz Ansari, singers Randy Newman, Ryan Adams, and Fiona Apple. I, of course, was happy to lend my talents as well, and as a professional boozer, there's nothing I'm better at than scamming free drinks. And as folks tend to be more generous at these things, once they've got a little Chardonnay in them, I was asked to secure a wine donation. And I did. I got that. Got all the wine donated for the event. So on Saturday, about a week before the fundraiser, some friends took me out for an extended brunch, because apparently that's what friends do when you're a few weeks removed from tragically losing a younger brother. My friends wouldn't leave me alone, frankly, and there seemed to be a direct correlation between people's level of sympathy and the amount of food they felt compelled to try and shove down my throat. Eat, eat, you need to eat. It was a constant refrain. If they weren't taking me out for meals, it seemed like someone was always swinging by the apartment with homemade lasagna or chocolate chip cookies or noodle salad. And I'm eternally grateful for that. The road to healing is paved with companionship and calories and cabernet. So that night I got home a little before sunset. and I had a solid buzz going and felt like keeping it that way. My girlfriend at the time was working at the restaurant where she worked and wouldn't be back for several hours. This was me time and I was determined to spend it with my most tolerable me. Grief counselors and psychologists and oh see anyone who cares about you will tell you that alcohol is not a healthy way to deal with loss which is why I moved my home gym over to my bar. Barbells cancel boost, that's just physics. Judge me if you want, but in the weeks immediately following my brother's death, I found that buzzed me was easier to get along with than say weepy me or angry me or worst of all, woe is me. That dude was a real drag, a real American wine oh, if you will. So I went ahead and poured myself a generous slug of red wine, put on my headphones, and headed to the roof deck. I'd been spending a lot of time up there, especially when I couldn't think straight enough to read, sleep, or even watch TV. I was keeping a good lid on the freak show most of the time, but my head was in a real weird place. I had nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty concentrating, irritable as a guar fan at a Sting concert. But up on that roof, I could see the sand and the ocean, beachgoers and boats, the infinite horizon and all its possibilities. A lot of time back then, I felt like I was being slowly smothered. But for some reason, I could breathe on the roof. I called it my happy place. Well, I would have called it my happy place if there was such a thing then. We'll call it my least crappy place. When people would come visit, I'd invite them up. Sometimes i could read the worry on their faces, other times confusion, especially if I'd managed to crack a smile. He's smiling, up here of all places. My buddy Z was the only one to come straight out and ask me, how do you sit up here and look at the ocean that killed your brother and not fucking lose it? Dianetics, Z, how would you like to take a free personality test? To which he said, how would you like a punch in the head? I'll take it if it means I don't have to eat more noodle salad. I mean, seriously, why the fuck do people keep bringing that over here? I lost my brother, not my sense of taste. You got good friends is why, you ungrateful bastard, he said. I know, I said, and collapsed into a ten-foot-deep puddle of tears. Thinking about my friends and how good they were to me, that was guaranteed waterworks. But I never once blamed the ocean for what happened to my brother. I have even, on darker days, entertained the notion that it saved him. Which might sound strange, because Brian drowned. And I'm pretty sure drowning is no walk in the park. But I'm a firm believer that there are fates worse than death, especially when there's heavy drinking involved. I've had a front-row seat for the demise of many drunks and addicts in my life. Some went slowly and painfully. Others took people down with them. Some checked out fast and violent. But when the deck got past Brian he drew ocean. Like I say, it could have been much worse. I've read numerous studies that assert drowning is one of the, quote, easiest ways to die, which is to say least painful. That's the kind of cheery literature you get into when you're dealing with this kind of thing. But come on, the only people who know what drowning feels like aren't around to give us a blow-by-blow. And even if they were, they couldn't compare it to being shot or stabbed or cuddled to death by puppies, which is, as we all know, the most adorable of deaths. Still, even though my logical brain knows it's probably bullshit, it's comforting to believe that Brian's death was peaceful. At his funeral in Pennsylvania, someone lamented that Brian's death could have been avoided. Bull fucking shit. I'm no expert in thanatology, but I am certain the death rate for human beings is still holding steady at 100%. We are, all of us, corpses in waiting in the walking dead, future worm buffets. Brian was destined to shuffle off this mortal coil, just like the rest of us. He just shuffled off a little faster than most. 31 years old and in good health probably sounds young to you, but he wanted a cheap thrill at 2 a.m., damn it, so he jumped off the Venice fucking pier, no more than 100 yards from shore. At least that's how far out on the pier we found his watch and wallet. Brian was six foot two and in good shape, played sports competitively his whole life, and he was a good swimmer. Forty nine times out of fifty, that big motherfucker makes it back to dry land safely, no matter how loaded he might be. Not this time, though. Not in the early morning hours of July 5th, 2010, when he splash landed right into the roiling guts of a powerful rip current that grabbed him and with brute assuredness took him right the hell out to sea. My brother Sean once asked me if the authorities had given any indication of how far out the current had taken Brian before I finally let him go. Far enough, I said, and we left it at that. When talking about my brother's death, people tend to attach labels like untimely, senseless, and tragic, and it's all those things. If you want, you could throw in shocking and unfathomable. But when I think about how he died, though, the two words that tend to come to mind are fucking and stupid. Brian was in trouble. I'd known that for a long time, but I didn't do anything about it. He drank too much, and sometimes when he drank too much, he did really fucking stupid things. It was obvious to me and anyone close to him that Brian was headed to one of two places, rehab or big trouble. And here's what's fucking stupid. I chose to wait for the latter to lead him to the former. That was my fucking stupid plan. Just sit around like a fucking stupid idiot and hope he got so trashed and did something so terrible he'd have no choice but to stop getting blotto. If I ignored the problem, I was spared the awkwardness of confronting him about it, not to mention confronting my own habits and behavior. Plus, Brian was a fun drunk. Drinking gave us a lot of good times I wouldn't take back. I knew the party couldn't last, but I was in no hurry to hasten last call. Brian was 31. Lots of people are fuck-ups at 31 and still turn out all right. Eventually, he'd stop drinking. And what do you know? He did. And I never even had to confront him about it. So I'm up on the roof with my wine, and the day was getting ready to call it a night. But not before it did some showing off the sun burning a red hole through the horizon like a giant cigarette butt tossed on the Venice boardwalk. Rumors is Fleetwood Mac's best album. Dreams, The Chain, Go Your Own Way, from top to bottom, pure gold. But my favorite track from Rumors has always been Never Going Back Again. Lindsey Buckingham wrote it after his messy and public breakup with Stevie Nicks. It's a simple song about complicated feelings, and it features one of the most enchanting guitar riffs ever laid down. Only a handful of songs can touch it. Jimi Hendrix's Castle's Made of Sand, Nirvana's All Apologies, but none have ever gotten to me quite like never going back again. The song came on in the waning moments before the sun disappeared in the sea. I closed my eyes as Buckingham picked his way through the intro. (laughs) ¶¶ I opened them again, there he was, Brian, sitting in front of me in the chair, rocking gently and smiling. I'm not talking about an image of him, a memory. I mean, he was really there, in the flesh, alive, undrowned. My logical brain said I'd had too much wine. Brian couldn't be there. But that's him, I protested. "'You've suffered a devastating loss,' my logical brain said. "'You're experiencing some sort of PTSD-induced hallucination.' "'Bullshit,' I shouted. "'Well, then you're drunk.' "'Shut up,' I said. "'If that's really Brian, then prove it. "'Reach out and touch him,' my logical brain said. "'I wanted to, but I couldn't do it. "'I was afraid that if I touched him, he would disappear.' "'Brian seemed to understand how scared I was.' He smirked as if to say, what a pussy. Then he gave me a reassuring nod and said, it's okay, man. Let's just enjoy this. The song is only two minutes and 15 seconds long. Some people can hold their breath longer than that. I bet Brian had. No doubt he'd held on as long as he could. He was a tough motherfucker. Lindsay Buckingham wasn't singing anymore. The guitar plucking was louder, the big finish. Wait, what's the next song on the album? Fuck. I know this. It goes secondhand news, dreams, never going back, and don't stop. Don't stop. Brian loves that song. It'll soon be here. Better than before. Yesterday's gone. Here we are up on the roof. But he wasn't. I looked over and saw an empty chair. My uh, friend, Jonathan, is an actor best known for portraying the most interesting man in the world in a high-profile ad campaign for Mexican beer. Stay thirsty, my friends. Jonathan and his wife, Barbara, were living on a sailboat in Marina del Rey at the time. After Brian was cremated, my brother Sean and his wife came to visit and we all went out sailing. We took some of Brian's ashes with us on the boat so we could sprinkle them into the ocean. Some kind of peace offering. We sailed out about two miles from where Brian made his fateful leap. Jonathan wrote down the coordinates in his logbook. I joked that when I kicked the bucket, I wanted them to chuck me in there too. Same spot. Oh, and fuck the cremation, by the way. Put my corpse in a trash bag and tie a cinder block to it. If I'm going out, I'm going out in Irish luggage, motherfuckers. It was windy and the sea was rough that day. Sean had put Brian's ashes in a Ziploc. That, too, seemed appropriate. None of that fancy urn shit for us duns. Trash bags and ziplocks is how we roll. Sean busted out his stash of Brian, and I made the obligatory joke about cutting up some lines and snorting them like Keith Richards did with his father's ashes. Everyone laughed for a second and then got quiet. I looked around us and saw rocking and vast expanse, and the whole thing just felt ridiculous. We had a bag of molecules, and we got onto a bunch of other molecules and used it to float on top of some other molecules so we could put these molecules in those molecules because these molecules are supposed to be special. Then Sean dumped out the baggie, and the wind blew it back all over us, Lebowski-style. It always looks so perfect and sad in the movies. After we got back to shore, the most interesting molecules in the world... And their wife came with me to the 826LA fundraiser. Being around people was still a little dicey, but live music is powerful medicine. And Randy Newman is a big, shambling panda made of love and bourbon. At the end of the show, Judd Apatow came out and thanked everyone in the packed theater for contributing to the cause. He encouraged us to stick around for the after party in the lobby where they'd be serving the wine that I'd managed to secure. I felt like a contingently non-shitty human for almost an entire minute for having played a part in getting it there. Then, just when I thought the lights were going to come up, Apatow surprised us, and he said there was one more performance to go from his neighbor, a guy by the name of Lindsey Buckingham, who walked out on stage with his guitar, waved to the crowd, and started picking out the intro to the third track off side one of Rumors, the one between Dreams and Don't Stop. It's called Never Going Back Again. Fuck you, Molecules. You made me cry in front of Judd Apatow. I listened to Never Going Back Again several times on my trip, and each time I did, I would take the mason jar with my brother's ashes from out of the center console and place it up on the dashboard, give Brian a view, and I would talk to him. As the trip went on, we talked more and more. Once during one of the loneliest stretches of the journey on the interstate between central Nebraska and Des Moines, after we listened to Fleetwood Mac, I reminded him about goal-line stand, a game we used to play in the living room when he was four years old and I was fourteen. I'd back up and toss him a Nerf football, he'd catch it, then square up and charge right at me, intent on knocking me down and scoring. Now I was ten years older and three times his size, but I never took it easy on him. So Brian rarely got past me, but he never got pissy when he was thwarted. He seemed to relish the challenge. I'd tackle him, and we'd grunt and growl and make all sorts of noises just like the real football players on TV. But no matter how many times he came up short, Brian would get back up on his feet, hand me the ball, return to the starting position, and give it another go, over and over again. The point was not to burnish my reputation as a run-stopper. I was never much of a football player. Nah, I loved goal line stand as much as the kid did. Every fourth or fifth try, I'd grab hold of Brian and pretend to struggle to bring him down. He'd screw on his meanest football player face, little legs pumping, arms outstretched, trying to get that Nerf football across the piece of masking tape that served as the goal line. Even then, he had a truly impressive drive. Trying to get to the goal line was better than actually making it. And then, just when Brian had exhausted every bit of energy he had trying to break free, I'd let him go. Touchdown. And that's it uh, for today, everyone. Uh, Again, stay safe out there, and uh, we're going to get through this. We really are. And uh, I look forward to you uh, joining me next time.